Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Ison, and I invite you to join me in these candid kitchen table conversations, where together we celebrate these leaders' ingenuity, are inspired by their wisdom and wit, and learn how collectively we can all strive to do and be better. This is Dreaming in Color. Sharif Al-Meki is the founder and chief executive officer of the Center for Black Educator Development, an activist nonprofit organization that exists to ensure there will be equity in the recruiting, hiring, and retention of quality educators that reflect the cultural background and share common socio-political interests of the students they serve. I'm excited to speak with him today. Sharif, thank you so much for making time. Excited to chat with you today. As you know, I'd like to kick off our sessions with passing you the floor for you to offer an invocation for us to talk through. I would start off with Grammy-nominated poet Amir Suleiman. Frequently, he brings up this idea that we are all going to be ancestors one day. Act accordingly. Mm. Um, And he goes on to say that our grandchildren, if we raise them well, and I often think about this as grand students as well, you know, as educators, like, yes, the children in front of us, but what about our students' grandchildren? Because if we do this well, their grand students should have a different trajectory if we're doing our jobs well. He said, when those weapons are inevitably formed against them, your granddaughter can whisper through gritted teeth and say, I am the granddaughter of so-and-so. You will be someone's ancestor, act accordingly. And so if we replace granddaughter with grand student, hmm. will they be able to say, I am the grand student of so-and-so educator and know that they will be okay? We can say we'll be all right, but will they? Will they really be all right? That's powerful. Thanks for sharing that. And it just makes me think a lot as well. So many of the things that you go through from a life perspective, from a professional perspective, mm-hmm. you feel like we've been here before. This battle has been fought before, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's oh, like, yeah. and you're, you know, and I, I think all the time from a work perspective, I was living a conversation earlier this morning. Uh, there's a wonderful Irvish quote about how we're in a relay race. And I think about I'm running a leg of that relay. And am I sprinting enough that when I pass it to the next person to carry the baton or they're in a good standing that they can continue to sprint or slow down for a little bit and rest, right? Like literally just thinking about how much we're preparing that next generation. The challenge is not only because we're Black in America and Black in the universe, mm-hmm. not only sprinting, we also have to pave and light the path at the simultaneously. And mm-hmm. I think that's the difference, right? Like I think that's part of, you know, like what white privilege may not have to necessarily do. They can sprint and pass on because the roads are already paved for whiteness to support them, whether it's law, policy, economics, it's already paved in a particular way where we have to be conscious of, all right, we're sprinting. Whoa, that's a big hole right there. We better address that. Pause. Stop. Fix this. Now pick up the sprint again. Right. And so that relay, if you think about it, it's not an even road for people of color. There have been policies that specifically written to undermine our progress. And there have been other policies specifically meant to smooth white people's progress. 100%. You're not just setting the pace, you're setting the path. And that's something to be said. There you go. There you go. I know that you come from a family of activists and educators and also had the experience of attending a predominantly white school while growing up. I was reminded of the fact that I'm a New Orleans boy. I'm a seven generation New Orleans. My family's been in New Orleans for nine generations now. Oh, wow. And at some point I realized that Sharif, of those nine generations, I was the only generation that went to integrated schools. They were segregated de jour, right? Legally segregated before me. My parents integrated their high school together, right? Mm-hmm. And they were de facto mm-hmm. segregated after me, right? Uh, from a generational yeah, perspective, yeah. because all the whites left. There was only black folks at schools. 
with the exception of the teachers, right? So my parents went to all black schools with black teachers. My nieces and nephews generation, they went to black schools with white teachers if they went to public schools, right? Or they went back to the old black schools that existed in New Orleans before the parochial schools. You know, I'm just reflecting on how that in many ways has shaped my thinking around the role of education and the importance of education and the normalization of education. Mm-hmm. But I would love to hear you share a little bit more about how your upbringing shaped your motivation to impact and change education system. Yeah, you know what? I, I mean, and I'm so grateful for the elementary school experience that I had, even even pre-K. Like, I remember my pre-K mm. teachers. They were Black men and women. It was in a masjid, a Muslim faith-based institution. And my mother was really adamant and pushing that, like, this, a masjid should not just be for adults. Like, you know, you should be ensuring the intellectual development of children as well. And so she pushed and challenged them to start a pre-K. And, you know, and wow. in this masjid, Masjid Mujahideen up on Columbia Avenue in, in North Philadelphia. And so when I think about that and then eventually going to, you know, she was always in search of like, what's the best option for my child? And so um, when pre-K was over, I think we went to the African Institute for a very short amount of time because she heard about this school called Nithamusasa. That was an African free school started by activists. And so we went there for first grade through sixth grade. And unfortunately, it is no longer in existence. That school, I think, when I think about the pivotal role it played, and even up to my mother's death in 2020, one of the things that she remarked, I remember her talking to the founding principal, Mama Fasaha Trailer. I heard her say on the phone is like, this is one of the, that was one of the most important decisions I ever made was to partner with this school, enroll my three oldest children in the Thamusasa. And so when I think about that, and, you know, even as an educator now of 30 years, in the Mm. back of my head, I still think I'm chasing some of those experiences. And I want to be able to provide that to my community and to the children that exist. Like, you know, having a, a, not only anti-racist, but a pro-black school, you know, Mm. Um, having this just a strong sense of positive racial identity, uh, development, never feeling unloved, no matter what, even a safe place to make mistakes and not feeling unloved, but then also being highly literate, numerate, et cetera, right? Like most of the students who graduated there were able to skip multiple grades because it was K to six. So then we ended up, many of us in public school sector, you know, traditional Mm -hmm. schools. Most of my classmates were able to skip multiple grades. Oh, wow. You know, it reminds me of Dr. Alfred Tatum, you know, where he says, no, I don't want students to be proficient in reading. They should be advanced in reading. Like, you know, why are we talking about proficient? That's the bottom of the expectation barrel. <laughs> he said, no, mm-hmm. the idea is advanced. And they didn't talk about it that way, but they talked about leading and serving in your community, loving your community, being responsive to your community. And all that takes a level of problem solving and literacy, community focus, right? All of that was what they were pouring into the school and modeling for us as elementary school students. My aunt sent me a letter that I mailed her in 1977. So I was either six or seven years old. The letter was about going to a protest for the Wilmington 10. And so being aware of Ben Chavis, being aware of the Wilmington 10 as a first grader, but then also writing a letter and saying, inviting my aunt to go to a protest that we were going to attend. That was my elementary school experience, right? And so even though I wasn't thinking about education, I was certainly thinking about activism. Yeah. And I would say the, the other piece of that, so it's like the home and school connection. I remember when I was vowed to be, you know, part of the fight against injustice. I remember like consciously saying like, oh, no, I'm going to be in this. That's when I first saw a picture of my father 
and some of his other Black Panther Party members lined up on the street, photo taken while they had been stripped to their boxers. I did a moth talk on this and I named it like Afros, Boxers and Handcuffs and Guns. Um, wow. And as elementary school students, seeing a picture, and this had happened years before, but that's, I think, when I first saw this picture of my father and other members of the West Philly branch of the Black Panthers. Even as a seven-year-old, I was like, oh, I'm going to wear boxers when I grow up because that's what revolutionaries wear. Like, it kind of like gave me this added thing of defiance against mm. racism, against brutality. There is something to be said about when you have a working narrative from an activism perspective the stuff that folks that are meant to deconstruct that narrative actually only reinforce it, right? Yeah, and exactly. so, same for me, grew up in a, you know, I'm from New Orleans, right? Grew up in a black mm -hmm. home, mm -hmm. <laughs> black mm -hmm. neighborhood. I joke all the time about the first time I realized that white people even existed, right? I mean, people talk about the first time they realized they were black. Yeah, I was about to bring that up. You remember they were doing that or seeing that? It was like, huh? When I was born, like, I, so when I gained consciousness, that's what I, you know. There's the normalization of blackness, mm -hmm. but also the normalization of blackness as a thing of beauty and a thing of power yes. and a thing of strength. Right. And when you've had that normalized for you, mm -hmm. when others come with false narratives, it, it just it, it doesn't stick. You've already talked a lot about how, you know, black educators have played a role in shaping you from a young age. I would love to hear how it shaped your experiences around your expectations of yourself and your community and you're providing for others as well. One of the things I think that, you know, when we talk about like the short and longitudinal impact of black teachers, a lot of people focus on the role modeling. What I like to point out is yeah, role modeling. Yes, but I had one white teacher at the Islamic school that I attended for kindergarten. Mm. And then I didn't have my next white teacher until high school, 10th grade high school. Wow. Right. And so. So the modeling, yes, I was surrounded, you know, by black and brown teachers. But I, I think the other part was just the high expectations that they had, like they literally looked at us as you are the next generation of freedom fighters. You are the next generation who will, again, we talked about like this path and this relay. And I, I can't help but to think about like how many educators who have no relationship with, you know, the black community, don't understand the history, the context, the sociopolitical conditions that we grow up in, and yet they're parachuting into our neighborhoods. Their only relationship with the black community is what they see in, on the media, social media, and then our children, that's the only relationship. Like, how do you even form a working relationship if it's only with our children, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you're equipped with biases that they may not have the language to push back on. They may not mm -hmm. understand exactly. They know they're not being treated as human beings, but they don't know what the exact language. They're not going to say like, you know, as a kindergarten, like, hey, that's a microaggression. But I would say that the high expectations, the context that they understand that we'll be going into the history that played out, that positioned us where we are today, all of that ties into the black educators that I had. And, you know, as a principal, I often tell my staff, like, you know what, every lesson plan you write is a political document. Hmm. And every time you teach, it's actually a political act. And it's going to betray, you know, your mouth may say one thing, how you teach is actually going to really demonstrate and highlight what your mindset about black children their families and community and their history is your awareness, right? And yep. so that political piece, you know, the Black Panther Party, everybody talks about like the guns and the leather. My mother said the most important part was the feeding children, like the community work that they did. And then the political education that everyone had to participate in. She said that was the most important thing. And as a black educator, I think that's what people are bringing. Let's unpack that for a little bit, because this is one of the areas where I recognize, you know, 
black home, black family, black community, how there was a normalization of politics. I remember in this white school that I went to for elementary school, and for the record, it was totally a hippy dippy, you know, it was it was best practices integrated school, right? It was like twenty mm-hmm. percent this, thirty percent that. We had, right. you know, all these hippy dippy teachers. We used to sing morning meeting every morning with Miss Eagle, this black woman with an afro, we used to play the piano, we used to all be singing Beatles songs. It was mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't have designed something more stellar, right? Wait, from wait, an integration wait. perspective. There was really an experiment of some sort and produced some good folks. But I also remember second or third grade, we had a mock election. It was Reagan and Mondale. And my teacher, you know, this Miss Intosca, this wonderful teacher from somewhere in the Northeast. One of these white women that came to New Orleans, fell in love with the city and state. Mm. And she was like, okay, kids, we're going to have a mock election this afternoon. Let's talk about the candidates. What do we know about the candidates? And my classmates didn't know anything. I mean, black home, we talk about the candidates every day, right? (laughs) And so she's like, okay, let's start with Reagan. What do we know about Ronald Reagan? And I raised my hand. Sharif, I was ready. She's like, Darren? I was like, Ronald Reagan's the devil and he's trying to kill us. Like this this was literally this is how every black home talked about Ronald Reagan, right? This was not this was conversation. And so my teacher looks up, she's like, Okay, well, this is true. What else do we know? Right? (laughs) I was surprised she ain't seen you on an errand. Oh, why don't you No, no, no. She called my mom after. She's like, I agree with your son's politics, but just so you know, he's out here. He's out here speaking his mind in the classroom, right? Yeah, um, but yeah, I think yeah. there is something to be said about how there's this. I, I use the word normalization a lot because I think there's something powerful mm-hmm. about an expectation that you have a sense of belonging in these places and these spaces, right? And how that plays out. Set in Philly, the show uh, Abbott Elementary has had a huge cultural impact on this past year, and one of the many reasons people love the show is that it showcases Black educators that truly care for black students. This is something that I talk with Liz about uh, often, and she brings it up as well, Liz Thompson. There's something to be said about how when you're working with a group of folks, there's a difference between working with them, being invested in them, and actually loving them. (laughs) And what does it look like when you love the folks that you're working with and that you're supporting? And how love shows up and you get at it already in some ways, you know, you're talking about the level of expectations. That is love. Right. Like you, this, no, you're not just going to push through this class. You're going to excel. You're going to soar. Like, you know mm-hmm. how many people sacrifice for you to be here? Mm-hmm. You're about to take it to the next level. That's the expectation of you and what that love looks like. And, you know, with that in mind, I would love for you to just talk about what inspires you to continue working as an educator within Philly. People throw around this four letter word so much without really understanding, like, you know, what it means. On the amount of people that I've seen in, you know, across the country who talk about, I love my students. And, you're like, but this is the assignment that you're giving them, or this is the amount of disciplinary referrals that you wrote for them, or this is what you love. Don't look like that. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it's action, it's mindset, it's skill development. Because I think the other thing about having high expectations, you know, often when we talk about expectation, we're talking about gaze of the adult to the child. The most important mm. expectation is what adults have for themselves. And I think mm. that's what really fuels authentic, real, unabashed sustained, powerful love. It's like, what expectations do you have for yourself? Because I think often Mm. we, people have, yeah, plenty of people have low expectations for black students. They have even lower expectations for themselves about what they can do with, for, and by black students. And, you know, it also reminds me of my educators that we had at Nathan Sasa. I remember, you know, one of them, Baba Changa, who's still my favorite 
teacher ever, taught multiple subjects. You know, one of the things he used to talk about was like, listen, the work that we do is so important. And again, we're elementary school students talking about like normalization of these mm -hmm. type of conversations, but also like where we were going in the world, like being able to see like, hey, here's what you're going to encounter. When you leave this safe space of Nathan Musasa and your homes and in your community, he said, you know what? Students are known by their teachers, but more importantly, teachers are known by their students. The things that stick with you and as you're an adult, you understand it even on a deeper level. Like for a teacher to, you know, be known by their students means that they've equipped their students in such a way that they're making such an impact that that teacher 50 years ago is still having an impact on the outcomes that Dr. Greg Carr talks about this a lot. You know, like what's the, mm. it's not just who leads the classroom, who prepared them to lead a classroom, who prepared you to lead this district, who prepared mm. you to lead this school. And we as a community should be able to trace the intellectual genealogy that's manifested wow. in your thoughts and your actions, your mindset and your, your work. And we should be able to trace that back and say, oh, and we push educators to do that. Like, who helped you understand how you think about the Black community? And if people are reflecting on that, then it's very easy to continue to perpetrate narratives and false troops and low expectations because they haven't thought about, wait a minute, where did I learn to have low expectations about Black children? Wait a minute, why am I reacting to this young Black girl in this manner? Who taught me that? Is it the media that I'm ingesting? Mm. Is it the just a racist smog that Dr. Beverly Tatum talks about? Or was it at my dining room table and then my car mm. rides home? You know, was it from the, my teacher and the curricula and the things that she had on her, on her wall, right? Like someone taught you that, but if you're not pausing and thinking, like I can, I can trace my intellectual genealogy of, of this is why I love the black community. This is why I understand and, and uh, like what Ella Baker style leadership why that's so important and why they resonate so deeply. This is why I can understand why youth, Black youth were joining SNCC and the Black Panther Party. I can trace that to groups of people who inform my thinking. I love this intellectual genealogy piece for a number of different reasons. One is, is brilliant. Two, you're tracing it back to the source and you're wondering if that source is a trusted one, right? There's some things that you've learned that it wasn't a trusted source that you need to let go, right? Yeah. And being able to own that and attribute to that as well. And that said, it also speaks to a very black perspective on success and growth. I think that this is where I see very often in my work and in my life, the traditional American narrative is one of success being in, in one generation. You're really responsible for your own success. You did it all yourself. I'm self-made man. I'm self-made. Ain't that the, the biggest crock of crap? 100%. Whereas in black America, you know that everything that you have is built on multiple generations, many of whom had nothing, but offered you so much, right? And I think all the time, uh, talk about normalizing my grandmother, long gone, my grandma Lois used to always remind me as a very young child through adulthood, you can do absolutely anything you put your mind to. And I was like, how did my grandma just sit up there and lie to me? Sharif, I had it ingrained, right? Like, listen, <laughs> you can do anything you put your mind to. I do want to use this idea of the source of all this greatness and this thinking to, I know at some point in your life, you recognize the important role of education from an activism perspective and your role as an educator, as an activist. And I would love for you just to just talk a little bit more about how you thought about activism traditionally or historically and how you saw your role as an educator, as an activist and the best form of activism you could be engaged in. 
Yeah, you know, particularly for someone like me who was not thinking about being an educator, you know, I was on my way to law school. You know, when I think about my mother's experience with the police, my father's experience with the police, my cousins, my neighbors, my own. I thought my activism, you know, it was always about like, what are you going to do for your community? How are you going to advance the the cause? You know, I remember, you know, we would sing about the bloodstained banner and what we were going to do for righteousness, you know, and for humanity and the righteousness of our struggle, right? You know, like there are certain phrases that were just embedded in my youth that just became part of my orientation, like the righteousness of our struggle, you know, and that the idea that, you know, you don't have to prove your humanity, but you're damn sure better defend it. Yours and others, right? You know what I mean? Don't don't go about proving like, oh, no, I'm a human being like, nah. And so it wasn't until later that I, I looked at education, you know, and I can tell you if it wasn't for a like, you know, I wasn't using this term back then, but, you know, a traumatic experience. Back, well, like, oh, that mm-hmm. was pretty traumatic. You know, being shot by a young man, I was starting to look at it from an educational perspective. So I was playing football, got into a fight. The young man who lost the fight had friends in the stands with guns, right? And so they ended up coming on the football field and shooting me. Wow. And my initial, and I think again, it's back to having love for your people. As I'm in the hospital bed for a month, you know, 12 surgeries. They thought they were going to have to amputate my leg um, because of the severed artery. I was thinking about like, okay, what can I do? And I had just graduated from college. So I graduated in May. This happened in October. So literally wow. just mere months, you know, as I'm thinking like, oh, I got to save up money to get to law school. Then at some point I was like, well, maybe I'll pause on law school for right now. Maybe I'll work with youth that have access to guns. Maybe, you know, um, Anger management, blah, blah, not that I didn't have anger management issues myself as a young child, but, you know, I had a right to be hostile. My people have been persecuted type of thing, you know what I mean, to quote the channel PE. My first inkling that I was going to grasp onto was at the Youth Study Center, which is basically a juvenile justice center for youth waiting to be adjudicated. That was my initial thing, like, hey, I, w- I want to lean in even more and support in this very particular way as I'm heading to law school, but because before, in between May and June, I was just doing odd stuff, you know, odd jobs, you know, I was a courier, did a little social work here, you know, like just mm-hmm. random stuff because I was like, hey, I'm, you know, my, my goal is law school. I didn't make it through orientation. And they need great people, but I was literally like, wait a minute, where are the youth before they get here? You know, at being trained to Suicide watch, locking doors, you know, patting down restraints for like kids as young as 12. I was just like, oh, triaging at that point. Yeah. I was just like, where are they before then? And it was there that, you know, it was after that, right when there, that was happening. And I was just like, I can't, this isn't me. And mind you, I want to, I want to like lay out like what a big decision this was for a 21 year old. Because at the same time, as I'm going through orientation, the people, the veterans who were working, veteran employees who were working yeah. there, one of the things they would say, like, hey, young man, you know what? You can make $100,000 through overtime working here. Because people are always calling out and we're always a little short staff, you know, but it's a kiddie yeah. jail, but you can make $100,000, right? And so just to, just to share, and I, and I get this in some ways, this is looked at, would be looked at as super radical and like, oh, you know what you could have done? This is in the early 90s. So I don't know how much that would be worth today, but I'm talking yeah, about like a, a 21, 22 year old. That's a lot of money now. So yeah. Uh, yeah. For a 21 yeah. year. Right. Exactly. Exactly. hundred thousand exactly. dollars with, oh, with overtime and stuff, of course, not the base out, but over oh, there, like, this is what I've, I've made the past 
couple of years and me deciding to take a job as a teacher, because like where my heart was, what I wanted to do, the impact I wanted to have, that started off, I think I was making $24,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and again, I'm not saying that people should do that. Everybody's in their own thing. And I, I haven't even thought about that until recently. I was just like, oh, remember, I remember like this conversation of making the decision, but where did I think I could make the biggest impact? What did I think was most important for my community? And I think also I'm just getting older and I hear people like, oh, this need, we need to make this amount, this amount. I'm just like, you know what? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And no, no totally. we should be making more. Like, and so like, you know, I, we, as an organization, we believe in the, the teacher salary project and all of those kind all of things. initiatives. And I just remember where I was as a 22 year old and just how hell bent I was in trying to support the community. Um, and not, you know, and again, that would be very radical in a lot of people's orientation and framework. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying this for everybody, but I was just sharing a little bit about where I was as far as like the activism piece. I think it speaks to in many ways as well. You know, I had this paper in SSIR about what distinguishes black and brown leaders, leaders mm-hmm. of color. And one of the things was, you know, this idea of a calling, yeah. having a calling to the work, right? I mean, jokingly enough, between you and me, a lot of folks are like, I've Definitely be finding other things to do with my time, but this is where I need to be. Like this, this is where I was called mm-hmm. to do the work itself. I think it also speaks to. I remember very candidly when I was heading off to college. I went from very white high school to Howard for undergrad, and my grandmother, as H-U? I was getting ready for HU, you know, uh, as I was getting ready to go, my grandmother reminded me of what's the point of an education. I remember my uncle peeked his head in the room and he said to make money, and my grandmother looked back and it's like that is not the point of an education. Education gives you choices. That's the point of an education. It allows you to have choices and allows you to flex and be able to decide what you want to do. And how, you know, what a gift that was to, to have a choice. <laughs> how are you going to yeah. spend your life and spend your time and actually have the ability to choose something that brings you some degree of comfort, that brings you some degree of purpose? That reminds me of Dr. Aisha Imani, who's, you know, just a, a legend around the world. You know, she takes yes. kids to Africa. And so everywhere between here and there. She was a neighbor of mine when we were little, you know, um, so her, she called my mother mentor. She's my mentor, you know, so all of that intergenerational modeling, intellectual genealogy. I remember a couple of times hearing her talk to, you know, um, new educators. And one of the things that she posited was this idea, like, if you, if you think that, you know, education or college or job, if it's only for social mobility, you're missing the point. Think about that so much when you hear about that, because the economics is real, right? When we talk about like economic oppression and all that, she said, yeah, I'm not saying not that, but she said, if that's your only goal, that's your only barometer, you're missing the point because that in itself doesn't lead to black liberation. Hmm. And, you know, I think, and again, here's an educator, here's a lifelong educator. You know, I've been in 30 years, so she's been in it 40, 50 years. And, you know, just having those type of educators and mentors who are constantly reminding us and pointing a direction and using the same code for the look back so that we know where we're going is just for me powerful. And I get that mm-hmm. every educator doesn't have this type of orientation, upbringing, but I'm standing by it. I do want to spend a little bit of time. I hear you talk about both your early experiences, your community. For me, I was lucky enough to grow up in, I grew up in black liberation theology, right? That random period in black American, you know, like literally the, the church, there was nothing more political than Sunday morning, right? Like it was, I mean, that was the role of the church. That was, I mean, this is radical. I didn't realize how unique that was until I got to college, right? And there I'm at Howard and 
And folks had really rough relationships with religion, which I get, you know, I, I, I hear it loudly and clearly, right? Jesus was a black rebel out here turning tape. Like I had, you know, you can imagine the narratives. Y'all out here literally, you believe Jonah was really in a whale for three days? That, that was just a, it's, it's, it's parables. Well, what do we learn from that, right? Why are you not drinking? Like, you know, the, Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. I think he's fine with a glass of wine, right? And so New Orleans, blame New Orleans on that one. But I think there is something to be said about faith as liberatory practice, mm. right? And one of the quotes that I love is, it's funny how people's gods often behave a lot like that, mm. right? I think about this all the time, how much my faith has shaped my thinking, has shaped my outlook, has shaped my orientation, my sense of community in such a positive way that I very often don't feel comfortable talking about because it's it's one of the... But honestly, it's just embarrassing, but it's such a, a triggering subject for others. I just want to give you some space to talk about how that's been the case for you, how that shaped your outlook and your thinking in the world. Yeah, listen, everything. Being raised as a Muslim, uh, spending some pretty formidable years, my middle school years after graduating at Damasasa, we moved to Qum, Iran, which is one of the most religious cities in Iran. And you'll find some Muslims that disagree. But how we were raised, Islam didn't separate itself from politics mm-hmm. because you know, creating poverty is a political decision. Denying people education is a political decision. Deciding who gets to eat, who has access, equity, all of that are political decisions. And so how can you be led by faith and say, I'm going to do good work, but I'm not, I'm going to ignore all the conditions that created the conditions for me to have to do this good work, right? Like it was combined. And then we also, in Islam, you know, our holy book, the Quran, the first word, that was revealed to our prophet Muhammad uh, was Ikra, which means read. That's the Mm. first word that was revealed was read. And the emphasis of education and, you know, what that, what that means. And, you know, even after some wars and you had a prisoner of war, a way to free yourself was to teach 10 people how to read. And that was your freedom, right? And so even if you were a prisoner of war, you were trying to kill us and we captured you. But if you teach 10 of our folks how to read, you're free to go, right? Like that, you know, just understanding that and just the depth of, you know, just this awareness and, you know, people, you know, I, I talk to people about like, you know, even things like the math and sciences. Uh, when you look at Islamic civilization, there was a reason why in Europe, when they were burning scholars at the stake for saying like, you know, this is where the earth is positioned. And Muslim theology is like, no, like understand and study. And this is why so many constellations have Arabic names and things of that. No, this mm-hmm. is why algebra mm-hmm. is actually an Arabic term, right? Like it's algebra. numeric system. Exactly. You know, so all those things are just a big part of it. And being in Iran and getting to see even education, how they approach education, right? And even seeing like, I understand why when you look today and like, Pound for pound, and you know, per capita, Iran produces more engineers and doctors, scientists than many other countries. You know, to be that's mm-hmm. that's small, but there's a, such an emphasis on education, understanding. You know, being in a country where a lot of youth have a decision to make, I would say the other option, but main three options: join the military, go to college, or be a teacher. Like it's looked at at that level of service to the country to go to a village where they may not even have running water. They may be, you know, farmers in these super rural areas, but going there and this is your kind of Iran Accord instead of AmeriCorps, right? Like you go 
and you're, you're teaching a villager. So for me, like just the, the faith, not only is it embedded in our work, one of our, our imams, Imam Jafar saw that used to talk about like, you can, you can talk about your religion without using your tongue. Faith in action. That's what faith is, right? Faith in action. Yeah. And they would say like, you don't look at people by how much they pray, how much they fast, how much they give charity. Look at how trustworthy they are to the people. Like that's, that's the true orientation. So I think, you know, it just ties into how we view ourselves, uh, you know, position mm-hmm. to having a level of humility, reflection, service, um, orientation and faith that, yeah, like I may not see some of these changes myself, but you know, that Chinese proverb of the best of people are going to plant trees that they'll never benefit from its shape. Hmm. You know, but it's, that's the faith of like, somebody will benefit from this. And my job is to make sure that it is ready, worthy, sustainable to provide someone shade in the future. The theme here, and I love it, is this idea of what are we producing for the future, right? For, the, for those that come after us and what's our goal in producing that. It's really powerful. I do want to give, make sure we have some space, given just the current political climate in terms of education. We got Florida wilding, because that's what Florida does, banning AP African-American studies. Florida's gone Florida. Debates around critical race theory, although people don't even know what critical race theory is half the mm. time. I don't know what it is, but it's everything I don't like. <laughs> Can you just speak a little bit to the importance of black educators in the role of CBED in this moment and moving forward? I think we're always, you know, it reminds me of Fanon, that quote that he has, I'm a butcher, but the idea that every generation has a decision to make and what they do and how they position themselves. Like everyone has a decision. I think us as black educators, we have a decision. We can poo-poo what's happening. We can say, well, that's that state. I'm in this state and it doesn't matter. That's what uh, Mamie Till initially thought, right? And uh, I think very similarly, Jarvis Givens in his book, Fugitive Pedagogy, quotes Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Many people know as the father of Black History Month, formerly known as Negro History Mm -hmm. Week, but two things that really stand out to me about Dr. Carter G. Woodson is one, he was an educator. He was training people on how to teach, how to create schools that were worthy of the honor of having black students. He was fired from Howard University because he was looked at as too radical. Because, well, you know, hey, we have our HBCUs. Many of them were created by white folks. Howard was problematic. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Carnegie was fired from Howard University by some white guy who was like, you don't know what you're talking about teaching black kids. I know better than you. But one of the things that Dr. Carnegie Woodson would say is, you know, there would be no lynching if it weren't for the schoolhouse. Hmm. There would be no lynching if it weren't for the schoolhouse, because that's the, originally where people are attacked intellectually. You know, we talk about schools being safe and thriving places for black children. We're not just talking about safety physically. Yes, that and intellectual, cultural, emotional, spiritual safety for this black child to be able to thrive. And so when we think about that in this anti-CRT hysteria, which is really anti-intellectualism, which is synonymous for America anyway, right? Like it's just, this is America. We're anti-black and anti-intellectual. We can't burn you at the stake. So we're going to burn your school down. We're going to burn your pedagogical frameworks down. We're going to burn your books, right? Like that, it's other ways to burn things. So I'm like, I'm laughing because it's just all so ridiculous. You know, it's just, yeah. The amount of people who are committed to being on the wrong side of contemporary and history. Like, I mean, they are like, what? That was the most racist thing you could think of? Hold my beer. Watch this, this, right? You know what I mean? It's it's just- um, Committed. Yeah, committed. committed, Like full out, like, yeah, we're going to, what? You ban Dr. King? We're going to ban Ruby Bridges. You can't talk about (laughs) Ruby, right? I'm just like, how idiotic can you be, right? And it's, you know, 
if it wasn't, you know, because it's not a sitcom, we got to be, you know, yeah. like super serious. Like, it's no, that's not a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, it could be, but it ain't. And so we have to be like not only super vigilant about it and finding ways to resist. And we can't rely on our oppressors to give a thumbs up and endorse what we know is liberatory pedagogical frameworks, liberatory teaching, liberatory content, right? Because every black, every teacher, even black and beyond, who's, if they're worth their salt, they should constantly be interrogating the curricula and 100%. supplementing and supplanting. That should be, you know, like, it should become, like, educated prep programs should That's already be level. talking about that. Base level, yeah. Basic. Like, even, hey, even if we're teaching this, you should constantly be thinking about, like, okay, is this the right thing? What's been added? What are new things you can unearth? What have you learned? Right. And so, you know, we used to talk about when I was a teacher, they would tell us. If you come in a classroom and with new glasses, students notice new shoes, students notice new book bag, new eyelash, whatever it is, new hairdo, students notice how many of you are going to PDs and book clubs and kids are with you all year and never notice. They should notice that you've gone to the workshops. They should notice that mm. you've gone to, you got your master's degree. It ain't just for that plus 30 in your, you know, for your CBA. Salary. Yeah, your salary. <laughs> You're like, hey, I got my plus 30. Your kids don't know you got plus one because they got the same mm. garbage, you know, hot garbage that yep. you were teaching before. Same mindset, same disciplinary referral, same low expectation. They should know that. And so when we put the, all of that in the context, like teaching is a form of activism and teaching black children well is a form of resistance. So we mm. should already have that type of, you know, not only the stripes and body work to show it, but that should be part of the fuel that this is a form of resistance, no matter where it comes from, because they, they may not be as loud as Florida and Tennessee and Texas and even Pennsylvania politicians. We should see it in the silent form of anti-blackness in the curricula and the textbooks. We should already yeah. see it in the underfunding and underdevelopment of our, you know, we talk about the underdevelopment of Africa. How about the underdevelopment of black communities and black schools? Global South and American South. Yeah. And listen, what Malcolm say everywhere is the deep South if it's south of the Canadian border. So act accordingly, you know? No, I think it goes back to the whole, like my grandmother used to always say, don't let these folks surprise you. <laughs> but if they you, already shown you like you still you know like, if you stay ready you don't have to get ready yo they they racist like shut up like where you been wake where up. you been yeah where you been sure we're over our time but i've enjoyed this conversation so much i do want to leave just a space for you to close this out and asking you how do you hold space for joy mm. for yourself for fellow educators and for your students i mean conversations like this bring me joy i, I don't I know if they're supposed to but they really do but how do you think about holding joy I think that's such an important part of particularly for uh, black people, any oppressed people's resistance is joy, because that's the first thing when you think about enslavement, they wanted you to sing while you weren't joyful. Right. And it wasn't joyful songs. And, and so if our people could find even during that to have humor, to love one another, to find ways. They looked at that as a form of resistance, you know, um, being able to wear a mask. But with my people, I'm finding some type of joy, right? There's no humor like black humor. I joke all the time, and this is probably not an appropriate joke. 
But you know there were jokes being cracked during the most oppressive times, yes. right? Like we yeah. found humor. I'm sure somewhere on that plantation, there was some humor, there was some joy because we needed it, right? So it's powerful. And even with the humor, there were so many messages. You know, I, I remember as a youngster reading Roots. So yeah, we watched Roots as a family, you know, when it initially came out in the 70s. And I also remember reading the book. And I remember uh, Fiddler making a joke, but it was also a political statement. He said something to the effect of, I know the Native Americans wish they turned that first boat into a porcupine. Hmm. I don't know why as a kid, that just made me laugh to think like, yeah, they were unified enough, understood enough what this re represented for their children's grandchildren and and like just said, hell no, and just turned it into a porcupine. You know, and, and that just stuck with me for now, you know, 40 something years ago, just like what humor and what a profound political statement, you know, and I think Anytime you're around your people, like, you know, one, humor is a great way to stay grounded. And listen, my daughters, they're the fun because they're quick to say, like, yeah, I don't care what panel you just came off of. Let me tell you the risk. Let me tell a real deal about yourself. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, that that joy and humor is just an important part of, again, self-preservation, resistance and and healthiness. Right. Like even when you see the health benefits of, of smiling and, and having a positive outlook and all those kind of, now there's scientific ways to think about it, but in the past, there have been faith-based ways to look at it. There have been practical ways to look at it. In some spaces, science is just catching up to, hmm. you know, and we're just like, oh, you know, this has actually been part of our survival. We didn't necessarily have all the research and double blind studies and blah, 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 but we're just like, we intuitively knew that this was a component of the resistance and, and preparation for the battles that are sure to come. 100%. And what is more humanizing than joy itself? It's been great chatting with you. This is wonderful. Same. Always great catching up with you. Of course. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. You take it easy now. 10th grade English literature was almost 30 years ago, but I remember my teacher, Fleur Simmons, well. She had a flowery southern accent, an anomaly in New Orleans, an anomaly that made perfect sense when we learned that she'd grown up in Alabama and settled in uptown New Orleans as an adult. She loved English literature and would often pause after reading a paragraph or a line of poetry to exclaim to the class, well, isn't that just beautiful? Miss Simmons introduced me to the Harlem Renaissance and with that Langston Hughes, and for this I'm forever indebted. Tenth grade was also when we mastered the five-paragraph essay. Miss Simmons' approach was draconian. It involved underlining certain sentences and pedantically numbering points in the thesis statement that would then go on to serve as a topic sentence for the underlined first lines of the three-paragraph essays that followed. There was a list of egregious errors, run-on sentences, fragments, comma splices, misplaced modifiers, and for each error from that list, your grade was lowered by a letter, no matter how brilliant the content. But after three consecutive A's, you didn't have to underline sentences, number theses, topics, or even worry with egregious errors. For after three perfect scores, you had demonstrated that you'd internalized the rules and any errors were intentional and all part of your writer's voice. Ms. Simmons died in early 2020. She was in her 80s and had remarried some 15 years before to her ballroom dance partner, the father of a South Asian classmate. I always remain grateful for that critical life lesson she offered with the five-paragraph essay. You have to know the rules to break them. An important lesson, indeed. My conversations with Sharif reminded me of Ms. Simmons, Ms. Simon, Ms. Hadley, Ms. Ziegler, and Ms. Hentoska, and many educators who instilled in me a beautiful appreciation of education as a path to liberation. I'm also reminded that many years ago before I headed off to college, my grandma Lois sat me down and gave me a going away talk. There were many gems in that conversation, but there are three points that I remember very well. One, God's greatest gift to man was that of free will. Our gift in return was embracing our freedom and living our lives as beautifully as possible. Two, 
Always be kind. To those who deserve it, it's an act of love. To those who don't, it's a stinging rebuke. And three, study hard and take your studies seriously. A good education gives you options. And options are the greatest luxury a man could possess. Options for me, but more importantly, options for those who come after. For liberation work is always future looking. And that's our work. And it's the most important work we could be engaged in. Well, y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridgeman supported Studio Pop Media production. Special shout outs to our wonderful show producers, Teresa Buchanan and Denise Savas. Our video editors, Dave Clark McCoy, Diana Radaelli, and Alejandro Ramirez. Our graphic designer, Diana Jimenez, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge shout out to our ever brilliant Bridgeman production team and family, Cora Daniels, Jasmine Relaford, Ami Diane, Christina Pistorius, and Ryan Winslow. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk soon.